I've been told I'm a little bit better scripted. So bear with me as I read a bit because my handwriting is a bit like a, like a genius surgeon. Well, in any case, here we go. The Roman historian Livy once said of history something to the effect that it is the surest cure for a sick mind. Therefore, for going to study the experiences of people we've never met, as told by someone we don't really know, we must also be attentive to catch the diagnosis such a story would render, and consider the cure that such a well-considered story offers. For, as both Peter and Paul said, we're all but men of the same nature as each other. So, with what human frailties must we treat in light of the history related in Acts chapter 14? Now, this is not an exhaustive diagnosis, but rather only two particular specific aspects of the human condition slated for targeted therapy. Number one, the nature of faith. Number two, the logistics of life. Now, faith means trust. So etymologically, faith through French, they screw up everything. It comes from Latin fides, which means trust. So we get fidelity, infidelity, infidel, confidence, confident, confidant, anything like that. Anyway, I'm rambling. It is sometimes said of scripture that if read well, it does not teach us anything new, but rather reminds us of what we already do or ought to know. Now, with the man in Lystra, in Acts chapter 14, we're confronted with what we already know, what it actually is to act in light of faith. Trust. Now, my estimation is that oftentimes we caricature our trust, or faith, in God. We know that God is omnipotent and omnibelevent, benevolent. We know the stories of when Israel stood back and watched God fight their battles, if they can actually rightly be called Israel's battles, that to faithfully persevere is to sit still fully back, knowing that he is God, and all that is required of us is to stand true, bravingly like a boulder. Stand there. There it is. Stand there bracingly like a boulder on the shore. Our only task is to passively not be rolled or weathered away by the winds and the waves of life until such a time as God calms those winds and waves of the hurricane. Now, admittedly, and willingly so, there are times when such positive, when such passivity, like I said about my handwriting, guys, there are are times when such passivity is indeed the best, most appropriate course of action. Again, my concern is not that we have, my concern is that we have caricatured our faith or our trust in God to a simplistically reduced form of Calvinism and faithfully parrot that no works of our own save us, not really understanding what that means. We lose sight of the fact that on the ground, that by its very nature, trust is proved and rewarded when one acts in light of it. At this point, I'm actually getting lost in my own writing, so let me just go to Luke's account. Acts 14, 8 through 10. The crippled man heard Paul speak and listened intently. What was Paul saying? Probably what he's always said. He was preaching and teaching, so proclaiming and explaining the gospel, which is the power of salvation unto all who believe. A note about the word salvation here. It is more than mere rescue. 
Fully and perfectly understood, salvation is a restoration of soundness, security, and health for both body and circumstance. Paul could read in the man's face, in his body language, that he had enough of an, of an accurate trust in God to be made, well, saved. But to stop here is to trap trust in the box with Schrodinger's cat. It both exists and doesn't, is both alive and dead, unless let out and verified. So Paul, recognizing this man's genuine trust in God, commands him to act in light of it, rather than sitting back and simply waiting for God to do something. Potentially, an interesting and not invalid understanding that faith without works is indeed dead. Now, in true Machiavellian fashion, let me offer a more contemporary historical example to further elucidate my point. I have a friend with whom I have a very interesting relationship. He is one of my closest friends, and yet is also one regarding whom I can feel the most distant. My crippledness, my affliction from birth, as it were, is that I am, by natural disposition, if I may use such phrasing, interwovenly insecure and comparative. I evaluate myself by the strengths and attributes of others and desire acceptance from those I determine to be my betters or superiors in some form or fashion. Now, such condition is not unique to me, but is, I wager, rather generically human. This friend is one whom I have, in a time past, determined to be a sort of archetypal superior, the type of man that I, unsoberly, would pine to be and, and bemoan that I never could, and from whom I craved the undeniable, unequivocal assurance of love and acceptance. Now, this crippling was causing significant damage and degradation to my soul and psyche. Forgive the alliteration. I actually have that written down. But I have another friend who stood in the place of Paul, a man who knows this archetypal friend well, at least well enough back then, to declare to me that indeed my archetypal friend does love me, does accept me. What I needed to do was take some action to give occasion for such trust to be proven. So, finally, I acted upon the trust I have in my archetypal friend, explaining to him my psychological crippledness and how our relationship factors, factored, whichever tense, into it. I stood up, knowing that the one whom I have trusted... Nope, there was a period there. I stood up, knowing the one whom I had trusted. And my trust was proven. Along with one other affirmation, my archetypal friend stated that he accepts me and commends me. From then to this day, God has used the relationship with this particular friend as a sort of physical therapy, the most conducive context within which to deal with and grow or mature out of the cripplings of which I could, so that I could be made well, basically. Sorry if that's getting a little disjointed. Basically, let me go off script here. God has used my relationship with this friend and that particular experience 
to establish a context within which I can continue acting in a trust which I have already established in my mind validly. And in so doing, actually have that trust play a factor in my growing and maturing sanctification, salvation, wellness. And that, through that, God is displaying the exact same thing. My trust in my friend is not in him alone, but in the God whom he serves. And the fact that God has arranged this friendship and the trust between us to be both an illustration of and the outflowing of our well-placed trust in him. So, like, I'm going to go back on script. This might be a little bit repetitive. So it is with God. It's not that the nature of trust changes. Whether, whether, rather, there it is. Come on, reader. Rather, we have only to be confident in him whom we have placed our trust in. And for what we have placed our trust in him. And act accordingly as befits the occasion or circumstance. And perhaps this is why Paul says what he does about tribulations in verse 22 of Acts 14. Here's where my own hermeneutical habit will be on full display. Now, I love words. And adamant that I'm not falling prey to the etymological fallacy, I affirm that oftentimes it may be better or more profitable to consider the initial, simpler, more direct meanings of words rather than the extended, derivative, connotative, or associative understandings of them. The only real knock against me here is that I'm going to consider with reference to the Greek Jerome's Latin rendering of Acts 14.22, and not necessarily the original Greek as my starting point. I'm more familiar with Latin as a language, and I often find it helpful to consider the Latin rendering in order to help me comprehend the thoughts that were originally expressed, expressed in Greek. According to the ESV, Paul declares that through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. The terms here of concern to me are tribulations and must. Now, essentially, tribulation comes from a Latin noun meaning distress or trouble, a noun which itself is derived from a more primitive Latin verb meaning to rub, wear away, or wear out. So, succinctly put, a tribulation is any potential situation requiring fortitude, endurance, and faith. The word must in English requires not more consideration, just a bit more explanation, because the grammar is a little bit funky. In translating Acts 14.22, Jerome chose the verb oportet for what the ESV renders as must. <coughs> Sorry. Now, oportet denotes necessity of reason or duty. Resultantly, it's better rendered in English as reasonable, proper, behooves, is becoming, ought, or even needful. According to Blue Letter Bibles lexicon, the Latin renders the Greek terms for must and um, tribulation accurately. So, a clearer translation into English of Acts 14.22 would probably be, it is needful that we enter the kingdom of God through many trying situations. For it is only in these situations that our trust in God may come to fruition and further refine us towards full sanctification. Because it's in these situations that we must use our trust 
engaging ourselves with the situation through which God will and does prove his salvific power. Now, this is a lot to say, and I hope clearly, given my various stops, what we actually already know. Trust and do. Discern what is the best through a renewed mind, keeping in mind what is honorable, just, pure, lovely, and commendable, and interact with your ex-spouse, your employment situation, your friends, whatever trying situation through which you should rejoice because you trust him who has equipped you with the steadfastness which will eventually perfect your salvation. All right, so that's trust. You know what it is. We can't just sit there. If we do, it'd be like me. I did trust that my friend loved me. He had proved through other various actions that he had. But what I had to do was actually step up into that and provide a situation for it to actually play out. So it was with the man at Lystra. He heard Paul. He believed. He trusted God for salvation, for being made well. But he couldn't just sit there. Otherwise, there would have been no proof to his trust. And so God told him through Paul, get up, stand. And when he did, his trust was proven well-placed. My friend told me, talk to him. So I did. And my trust was well-placed and even strengthened. So, you know what it is to trust. You know what it is to act in trust. So trust and do.